0: If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, also known as a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church of Christians in Philippi, which is why it's called Philippians. If you're not used to using a Bible, the Black Pew Bible has Philippians chapter 1 found on page 980. I don't know what it is in the other Bible. What is it? The page number, anyone? 921 in the other Bible. So 980 or 921, if you're not used to using a Bible, those are the page numbers where you can find the letter of Paul to the Philippians where we will now begin right now our six-week study in this letter. If you have a handout, you'll see on the back of that handout a overview of the entire series with the sermon titles and the section breakdown of this letter. I've called this series, The Gospel and Philippians. More so than almost any other letter that Paul writes, the percentage of concentration regarding the word euangelion, which we have translated in English, the gospel. Paul uses that word a lot. Many people call this letter the letter of joy and it is very much a letter filled with joy from Paul as he expresses it to these people but I think supremely Philippians is about the gospel it's centered around the gospel so you'll see that third message the gospel and politics just as a little teaser that's not about bipartisan American politics that's not the sermon that will be preached but rather the citizenship of heaven and a new kind of political thinking and living based upon the gospel. And that third message will be the center of this series because I think it's the main point of the letter. It's the main thing Paul is trying to address in Philippians by explaining to them what the gospel is and how that should transform the way they live. And seeing that as the main thesis and big idea of the whole letter, I've decided to call this series, The Gospel and Philippians, to see first how Paul's prayer for the Philippians is transformed by the gospel. That's today's message. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at how the gospel makes us think about the preaching of the gospel, and then we will look at politics, then paragons. I had to stick with the Ps, or we could say exemplars two examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who reflect the gospel kind of living of self-sacrificial service for the sake of gospel advancement. And then the last two messages, the gospel and perfection, or as we will better translate it, maturity. How does the gospel make us mature or perfect in Christ? And finally, we will look at the gospel and partnership. There's your overview of the series. And if you like the gospel, I think you will like this series. And if you're here as a guest or visitor and you don't know what I mean by the word gospel, it's an old word and it's not about a type of music. It's actually just a word that means good news and typically a word that's used to talk about the news of a new king reigning on a throne. And what you'll find at the very heart and center of Philippians is that there is a king. He is reigning on a throne and it's the throne of heaven, and that king's name is Jesus Christ. So, if you're new to Christianity, welcome. Come for the next six weeks. Come listen to us read God's word from Philippians, and consider how the gospel of King Jesus transforms the ordinary, everyday moments of our lives. And let's begin first with the first section, verses 1 to 11, the gospel and prayer. Would you follow along as I read? Verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer Thanks be to God, God's people say throughout the history of the church. When you say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God God for his word. Amen. In addition to the overview of this series, your handout also includes just a one-sentence big idea for this message and the three-question outline to help us work through these verses. So first, the big idea, the gospel changes our priorities, which are reflected in our prayers. The gospel, which he mentioned twice in verses 1 to 11, the gospel which he repeats over and over again in terms of this thing called good news about a new king on the throne of heaven, Jesus Christ, that gospel, it will reorient your priorities when you give allegiance to this king, when you bow before him and you say, he is my king and I will live as citizens of his kingdom. If that's true, this change of allegiance will be reflected in your prayers as they are in Paul's. That's where I want to go with this message. So we're going to study the prayer life of Paul from this first section in light of gospel transformation. So as you see on your handout, we're going to look at why does Paul pray? First question, what does Paul pray and how does Paul pray? Simple, basic outline, and I, hate, I think it'll help serve us as an outline, to work through this big idea, that the gospel has changed Paul's priorities, which is reflected in the way that he prays. So first, why does Paul pray? And the answer is very clearly in verse five. You see that verse three, he's beginning by talking about his prayer life. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because, and there's the reason why he's praying, the because. Verses 3 and 4 is just telling us kind of a little bit about his prayers, the frequency of them, the joy that is associated with them. But verse 5 says, because of your partnership in the gospel. I love this word for partnership. In the original language, Paul uses a word that is called koinonia in Greek, and it means business partnership on the one hand, but it means Intimate fellowship on the other. It's actually one of those words that's really hard to capture with one. You might need five or six of them to really grasp the way it was used, not only in the New Testament, but throughout the first century that Paul was living in when he used this word, koinonia. Some of you maybe heard it used before in other translations as fellowship. And that's true. I mentioned it has that connotation, a kind of fellowship a relationship, but also a kind of business partner in a more formal sense this word was used. And what we see here in verse 5 is that Paul is making mention that they have a business-like partnership in the gospel, and you can tell that that partnership is not just formal and very stoic. It's filled with love, compassion, affection in our passage. I want you to turn over to the end of the letter because you'll notice there's bookends about this partnership idea. And if you look at chapter 4, verses 14 to 18, Paul's going to explain more what he alludes to here in verse 5 of chapter 1. This partnership. What kind of partnership is he talking about? Well, we know it's the gospel. But just by reading the end of the letter, we see that Paul explains the specifics of this partnership. Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into, and there's our word, koinonia, partnership with me. And then notice the way this partnership is described, in giving and receiving. Now there's our answer. The partnership in the gospel that Paul is referring to in chapter 1, verse 5 which is the reason why he's praying. Why is Paul praying? Because of a partnership that he has with the Philippian church. What kind of partnership? One of giving and receiving, financially more likely. Some sort of physical material support. And as you keep reading in verse 15, or yes, verse 15 and 16 in chapter 4, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And then notice the way he's not begging for money. He's not a TV preacher that says, give me your money. He says in verse 17, not that I seek this gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And there he uses a very financial term. And that's how we know he's talking about giving and receiving of goods and services or perhaps money itself. And he says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. All right, friends, if you did not track everything I just said, I'm going to sum it up very simply. The letter of Philippians is four chapters long, and it is a rather lengthy thank you card. That's what it is. If I could sum it up in the most simple of terms for all of you to understand, Paul is writing a letter. It's like a thank you note. And therefore he is thanking God first and foremost for the Philippians to provide for him when he needed them to provide for him. Did you notice that little line he made in chapter four where he said, you only helped when no one else would. So if you don't know much about the Bible in the New Testament, Paul is a man who is a devout Jewish man and was radically converted to Jesus Christ and became a Christian, one of the earliest Christians. And he became this, for lack of better term, rock star kind of disciple maker and preacher. And he's traveling around and he's preaching the gospel. And as he does so, people are becoming Christians and churches are being started. And then he makes them strong and sets up leadership and then moves on to another place. Now for a while, he's doing this while still working a full-time job. And he says in another place that he's making tents to provide for his needs but at some point along the line churches that he helped start start providing for him the financial needs that he has so he can just preach the gospel go to bed and trust god to bear the fruit as he says in 1 corinthians i preached somebody else came and watered but god gave the growth paul's a preacher a traveling preacher and he can't do that without money And at first, he does that on his own by working a full-time job and then preaching. And then, eventually, people like the Philippians start paying for Paul to preach. That's the backstory. There's a lot more we could share, but are you understanding why Philippians, then, is a thank-you note to people that he holds dear to his heart for the fact that they cared for him and loved him during times that he needed just basic everyday needs. So, Philippians is a letter about partnership in the gospel. It's a letter about friendship, about a friendship that was formed as we read a little bit of that in Acts chapter 16. Go back and read the whole chapter and you'll see Paul's interaction with the Philippians and how they came to faith. But I said in our big idea that Paul's priorities are changed because of the gospel and they're reflected in his prayers. What do I mean by that in this first point? The reason he's praying, we've seen, is because Paul has a partnership, a relationship financially with this church. But look at verse 7 back in chapter 1, and notice the feeling and the emotion and the affection that Paul has. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. All right, basic, simple question. You can see this right in your Bible. You don't need to know Greek. Where is Paul when he writes this letter and when he's doing this praying? Where is he located? Answer, a prison. He's in jail. And if we track the story of Paul in the book of Acts, Regardless of where he might be, because he was imprisoned multiple times, as we already heard in Acts chapter 16, he was thrown in jail for a little bit. He was frequently in jail. So, scholars debate where he was at jail. The point is, he's in jail. And he's praying for them with love and affection. And this is what I mean. He cares about them. Why is Paul praying? He is praying thanks to God for their partnership, but he is praying for their souls, as we will see in the next point, the what of his prayer. But for now, we need to see the why is that even though Paul is imprisoned, this does not keep him from thanking God, being joyful, and praying for other people. And so if you look forward in chapter one, look at verses 19 to 26, and you'll notice that he's talking about this predicament of being in prison and not knowing whether or not he was going to live or die. I mean, friends, please, just for a second, imagine yourself in Paul's shoes in a prison and knowing that at any moment your head might be taken off. What would you be praying? What would you be feeling? Affection for your business partners? Verse 19, he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's feeling pretty confident that God's gonna answer prayer and he's gonna be able to be released from prison and see the Philippians again because he loves them so much. And that's why he says in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now as always be honored in my body, whether life or by death. And this is where he starts to say, you know, I might die. I'm confident, I'm hopeful that I will live, but I might die. And if I die, praise the Lord, because I am in Jesus Christ. And for me, dying is gain. For me to live is all about Jesus Christ. And for me to die, well, friends, that's not the worst thing in the world that could happen to me. In fact, some people, they call that a promotion. It's gain. It's far better to be with Jesus than it would be to be in this world. But if I have to live, this is verse 22, if I have to live in this flesh, well then that means fruitful labor for me. That means preaching the gospel. And between these two choices, being with Jesus and dying, or being with you all and preaching the gospel on the earth. Ah, I don't know. What should I choose? Are you starting to see that when you read Philippians, Paul has been transformed by the Priorities of this world versus the world to come. Is that obvious to you just from these few verses? I think if you read Philippians over and over again, you'll start to see that Paul's world is flipped around, his priorities are changed, his heart is transformed, and the man is sitting in a prison and he's praying about other people. His priorities different. His prayers with deep, deep love for others. Paul only even wants to live so he can preach the gospel more. It's the only reason he has a desire to even get out of prison. And in fact, he says in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, if you look through those verses, he's like, in fact, I don't know, if I stay in prison, the gospel's being preached here too. Praise the Lord. The dude is about the gospel, whether he is alive or he is dead, whether he is in prison or he is out of prison. And so therefore, he can sit in a prison cell and he can say, I am so thankful to God for you guys and your partnership with me in the gospel. And I just want to make sure you all know that even as I sit in a jail cell, the gospel is being preached here and all around the world. I wonder if any of this reflects the desires of your heart. And if you don't know, then start taking inventory of your prayers. Start listening to your prayers. Not in a weird way, but start thinking, what, what what kind of things do I pray for? Does it seem similar to what Paul cares about and prays for? Are you immediately filled with joy and thanks, even when you're in very difficult circumstances? I could just only imagine the number of people that have difficult circumstances right now in this season of life. Paul's going through some tough stuff. He might die tomorrow. Is that tough? You versus Paul's circumstances. Do you want to play that game? Or should we not even play that game and just say, whether I live or die? Whether my circumstances change or they don't. My heart has been so radically transformed that I think that the gospel is of utmost priority and importance. First importance, he'll say in another letter. Is that you at all? We're not just talking about Paul prays and he prays for certain things. We're talking about why he prays, and it's because of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. I'd say you could sum it up, especially by verses 7 and 8, his love. Love has come into his heart. The affection of Jesus Christ is the affection that I have for you. And others' centered kind of love. That's why Paul's praying. He loves them. You will hear this again and again over the next six weeks as we study Philippians. Paul loves The Philippians, more than he even loves himself. Oh, I want to encourage each of you to think about that in your own life. Are you oozing with love like Paul for others? Or are you so absorbed in your external circumstances that all you can ever pray is, God, get me out of this jam that I'm in? Which brings us to our second point, does it? What is specifically Paul praying? What is Paul praying for in Philippians 1, 3 through 11? Well, first and foremost, he is praying a prayer of thanks because of their partnership. But for this point, I want us to especially, especially look at verses 9, 10, and 11. In addition to a prayer of thanks, he does pray a prayer of what we call a prayer of petition, or he's making requests from God. And let's read those requests and pay very careful attention to the language. What is Paul's prayer while in a jail cell and thinking at any moment he might die? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. What a great prayer. I mean, how do we sum it up? Paul's praying for love to abound for knowledge and wisdom to increase, and for them to remain pure until Jesus Christ makes all things new. What does Paul not pray for? Well, the most obvious thing I'm thinking of is release from prison. In fact, you can read the entire letter, and it doesn't seem as if he's specifically asking, Hey guys, please pray that I get out of prison. I'm so scared and anxious and worried, and this, this jail cell is so uncomfortable and and these, these guards are intimidating. It's the exact opposite. He says that while he's in jail, he's rejoicing that the gospel's being preached in jail. And if he ends up dying, he rejoices because death is gain. He never once asks, change my circumstances. He does ask that God would change their hearts, which I believe is a reflection of his own heart change in the gospel. This man is oozing with love. And so therefore, the first thing he prays, God, make them abound and ooze with their own love for you and for one another. He does not pray for external changes in circumstances, but internal heart change. And that does not mean that your prayers for those things are wrong. It is okay to pray for people that are sick to get better. It's good for you to pray that God would provide for you a job if you're jobless. If you're longing for a spouse, pray that God would provide for you a godly spouse. Emphasis on godly. If you're in all kinds of predicaments and circumstances, drama and issues relationally at work or in the home, parents, if you have children that aren't behaving, it's good for you to pray that they would start behaving. But you know what would be a better prayer? On the basis of the New Testament prayers pray that their hearts would be transformed with love and not just an external outward behavior modification. Did we have to be reminded yet again that people can grow up in church? As we did this morning, some of you that gathered downstairs heard another testimony about somebody that grew up in church and played the part. In fact, stood up on stage and sang songs and led worship, but never knew the gospel in their heart. Some of you might be sitting here in the pew right now and you don't have a heart full of love and worship toward God, but you're doing the right church thing. Isn't it obvious as you read God's word and pay careful attention that what they care most about in the Bible is not just that you look a certain way on a Sunday, but that your heart is filled with love, that your actions are being a reflection of the transformation that God's done through the gospel. And that is why Paul prays these things, and it is what he is praying. If you were to actually do a little study in the New Testament and look at every time Paul prays for something, you would find that this is not the exception, but this is the rule. This is normal. Go read the first chapter of Ephesians. Go read the first chapter of Colossians. Go read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians. You could do worse things on your Sunday afternoon than read these first chapters. And as you do so, pay close attention. What does Paul ask for in each of those churches? And it's like a drumbeat, a constant pattern again and again. I pray for godliness. I pray for love. I pray for devotion and worship to the one true God, Jesus Christ. That's the thing that he seems to care most about. And so it seems to me like a really good question for all of us. Is that what we care about? Do our prayers collectively as a church reflect the change in priority and the gospel centrality that we see in Paul, in Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians? Well, brothers and sisters, I have both good news and bad news good news is that I've been your pastor for more than a day and for the last eight years I have sat in on prayer meeting after prayer meeting and by God's grace this church is filled with people that love the gospel we have a prayer meeting right now that's happening at like 9 a.m. if you want to come really early to church then we have another prayer meeting at 10 15 if you want to come a little early to church and then we pray in our church service have you noticed And then afterwards, some people, they discuss the sermon, and then they pray together. And then we have on Wednesday night, we have a prayer meeting just for 30 minutes, straight prayer. All of you, by the way, are welcome to join any of these things. And if you do, I want you to listen to the prayers of regular, everyday church members here at Embassy. And what you'll find time and time again is that we have a group of people. Not to pat ourselves on the back, but to give all glory and praise to a God who through the gospel changes people's hearts. And therefore, when you listen to their prayers, it reflects a gospel priority. So those of you that were downstairs, we heard a testimony and I asked for a prayer request. And what did Harry say? She said, please pray that as I study at Moody Bible Institute, God would use my studies so that I could advance the gospel when I go back home. First, prayer request. I didn't set that up. That's just what people who have been changed by the gospel think like. We heard how she was changed by the gospel in her testimony, the joy she had that she knows that her sins have been forgiven. So I would encourage you to go to prayer meetings at Embassy Church as a practical application and listen to the prayers of people that love Jesus more than they love their lives and see if that culture, week after week, does not start changing your own priorities, your own desires. It starts to get infectious, actually. It's my own personal experience. I give you the test. Sit in on two to three prayer meetings a week at Embassy Church the ones I just listed, and create new ones. If we have a new prayer meeting come out of this sermon every day of the week, praise the Lord, right? But hopefully our praying is filled with gospel truth and gospel desires and gospel advancement. I was thinking of one of our church members every Wednesday night. We gather together, 6:30, 7 o'clock, right before Bible study, we pray for 30 minutes, and every single week, whenever this church member comes, they pray for the nation's and the unreached peoples of the world every single week without fail. I love it. My heart rejoices because our prayer meetings are not just about, well, my dog is really sick. Good prayer to pray. I'm not telling you not to pray for your dog. But do you see the difference in terms of priority between a dog and the lost souls of people that have never once even had the chance to hear about the gospel? If you have enough time to pray for all of the needs of the world, I would encourage you to prioritize gospel prayers, regular external kind of circumstances, and then you can pray for the dog stuff. Why does Paul pray? And what he prays reflects, I believe, a change in his heart, that he loves the gospel. He never says, Lord, let me out of prison. Lord, let me live whether by life or by death. I want to give glory to God. And so I just, again, ask you, regardless of what circumstances you are in, are you thanking God for the gospel, thanking God for the church of Jesus Christ and your ability to partner with a local church for the advancement of the gospel? And are you praying, first and foremost, that you and the friends and the church members sitting around you, that their love would grow and abound both for God and for one another. This is how Paul prays again and again, and I don't think it's a coincidence. We here at Embassy believe that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write these words for our instruction, and I am now instructing you on the basis of this model prayer. Brothers and sisters, pray these words. Memorize them. I remember when we were studying Philippians, Erica, as I see her in the corner of my eye, she memorized this, and she started making this her prayer for our church. How about 20 more of you? Great prayer. Pray that God would make our church filled with love, filled with purity, filled with wisdom and discernment. And I pray that God would use this sermon as an encouragement for each of us to not only pray out of a heart centered around the gospel, but a heart that wants to see the gospel advance and therefore it becomes the priority of our prayers. Third and finally, how? How? We've considered why Paul is praying, like the circumstances around his praying. We've considered what he specifically prays. Now, third and finally, I want to just think about how. All right, some of you might be here and you're thinking, that sounds good. I hope some of you are thinking that. That sounds good. I want that. How do you get it? Do you just think to yourself real hard, okay, God, I want to love you more. Is it kind of a grit your teeth kind of thing? Is it self-effort? How does your heart get transformed and your priorities realigned to the gospel? Answer, two things. First, confidence in God's work to save all the way to the end. First reason, Paul can pray this way confidence in God's ability to save to the end. Second, a meditation on the amazing love and affection of Jesus Christ. My guess is that if you would so receive these two ideas, first, a confidence in God's ability to save to the end, and second, the affection that God has for you in the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart might even start being changed right now. Let's consider them as we close out our time. First, the all-well-known verse 6 explains Paul's confidence in God's ability to save to the end. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this confidence certainty of what Paul what are you so confident and certain about that God began a work in the Philippians he's confident was it the Philippians that figured out oh my prayer life's kind of self-centered so I'm gonna do these prayer techniques and then I'll become more loving or is it that by hearing the preaching of the gospel, as we consider the the overarching testimony of Paul and the New Testament, through the preaching of the gospel, and hearing the good news that God does a work in you, that that changes someone's life. I mean, what if it wasn't dependent upon your performance in prayer, but it was dependent upon God's power in you? If you're struggling to see this connection, I want you to just turn to chapter two. And we'll see this again because it's so important, but it makes the point that I'm making here of God's confidence to do a work in you. And this is verse 12 of chapter two. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like you don't understand yourself to be living in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not been baptized at a local church. With as many of you here, that might be some of you. And I just want to make it very clear that the Bible teaches right here in the passage I just read, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you are not called to work for your salvation. You are not saved on the basis of your good works, your moral resume, or anything that you think you've done that makes you feel acceptable before God. If you were to die and you were to stand before God and on the basis of what would you enter into heaven or be judged eternally in hell? Kind of gets at the, the the real core of what's your hope in? The Bible's hope is in the work that God does in us on the basis of the work that Jesus did for us. Work out your salvation because salvation is done. So work it out, not work for it. And in fact, his confidence that he can give a command like that to work it out in a kind of fear and trembling is because of his confidence that God is at work in them. Did you see that in verse 13? For it is God who does this based on his good pleasure. He delights to work in your heart to change and transform your heart from a self-centered, narcissistic, self-absorbed person that prays only for your stuff and not for other people. That's what he does. And he explodes the mind and the heart to a joy of something bigger and greater than just your little kingdom. It's called the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so hearing the gospel transforms a work in you where your heart says, Wow. There's so much more going on than just my little world and universe. It's called the real universe. It's God's universe. And in that sense, Paul has confidence, as we see in verse 6, because he is confident that God works in people's hearts and lives. So I just really want to make sure, pastorally, you all are seeing that the Bible says that God works in people's hearts. He, He does this. You can receive it, but you cannot manufacture it. You do not pull levers. Going to prayer meetings this week does not guarantee that your heart gets changed. On the mercy of God, you're saved. And on the mercy of God, you are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Our job is to put ourselves in the waterfall of God's grace and just say, God, Spirit, blow on me. And move me forward in my sanctification, in my holiness, in my godliness. So have confidence like Paul does. That's our first point. How does Paul pray this way? Because he's confident that God is going to work in the Philippians. Before we move on to the second point, I do just want to make sure it's really clear. Sometimes this verse in verse 6, it's a very beautiful verse. It can be over-individualized. I believe he's not just talking about God's His confidence in God to do the work just in their own individual hearts is plural, in you, plural. And in the partnership that we have, and that's why I said his confidence is not just in individual Christians changing, it's that, but it's also to the end. It's a confidence that he has that to the end God will advance his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's his confidence in that if God started to change someone and put the Spirit of God in them, he will keep them to the end even when they're struggling to keep themselves in love toward God. He keeps. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. And so therefore the advancement of the gospel is both individual and corporate. And I think he's talking to the Philippians perhaps even more heavily on the corporate nature of it. They've created a partnership together, and he's saying, I know God started a work when I started preaching the gospel, and I'm confident that he's going to finish that work, not just in you, but in the world. Are you that confident? And are you that global thinking in your Christianity? Has your heart become not only others centered in your prayers, but hope-filled for the nations, for God's advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth until the day of Jesus Christ? It's a short little reference to the end when Jesus makes all things new. And what was the second reason? How does Paul pray this way? Not only confidence in God's work in and through the Holy Spirit. It's kind of presumed and not made explicit. But God's work in the heart and in the church. But second reason, affection. I remember when we were studying this several years ago in our Wednesday Bible study. And this this point so encouraged my own heart. And I want to just close out with this thought. He says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way. The word could also be translated to think. So it's, it's not just like he's got feelings, although it's clear he does. It's right for me to have these kind of thoughts about you all. Joy, thanksgiving, just a real sense of love. He says, because of how I hold you in my heart and that you're partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then here's the verse, verse eight. For God is my witness. I am not lying. He's, He's so doubling down. He's like, guys, I don't want you to think I'm exaggerating here. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. All right, so first, Paul has a deep and abiding affection for these Philippians based on their partnership in the gospel. That's clear. But he uses the affection of Jesus to show how much he loves. Do you get the logic of verse 8? That verse means nothing if there is not an affectionate Savior named Jesus Christ. Why would he appeal to the affection of Jesus to try and explain his sinful, impartial, half-hearted, at best, being a sinner, but saved kind of affection? Because he knows that there is a greater supreme affection, and that affection is Jesus Christ. And so, I wonder if you believe that God is for you and not against you, that his love for you is so grand, so awe-inspiring, that it doesn't Change and transform your heart and life when you just ponder for a moment. Wow, the God of the universe looks at the little dust of the earth like you and me. And he loves us. He so loves us that chapter 2, verse 6 is going to tell us that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be stolen and grasped and and held on to. Rather, he humbled himself. And he took on the form of a human, not an angel. That would have been lower. He was God in the heavens, and then he didn't just become an angel. He became a human. He became a slave. In fact, he became the lowest of low of humans. He hung cursed and naked on a cross. Even death on a cross. But God, in his kindness and grace, did not leave Jesus Christ dead in the grave, as we celebrated last week. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. He is risen from the grave and God saw the humble character of Jesus, the works of Jesus on the cross. He was pleased by these actions and he raised him from the dead and then he seated him at the right hand of the Father, ascended in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the supreme Caesar, Lord, Emperor, Ruler over every nation, over every person. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul makes clear at the center of his letter, and it's that gospel message that if you were to just reflect that that is not just something that was done, it was done for a reason, and not just to take away your sins, but to express the love of God. As Romans 5 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love, his affection by dying for us. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you to meditate deeply on the gospel and more specifically think about the fact that there is a God who so loves you with an affection that you could never even dream or compare in your marriage, in your family life. All of those things are just a faint shadow compared to the affections that God the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit can pour into your heart and change you to become an others-centered person filled with love for the gospel, for the church, for the advancement of the gospel to the nations, and for others. It's no wonder that the reason he says all of that stuff about Jesus in chapter two is to help people consider others more important than themselves, which is exactly what he does in his opening prayer. Save me, I'm in prison. No, it's not what he does. I thank my God for you every time I think of you, and I have deep joy in my heart because of the partnership we have in the gospel. I'm right to think this way and feel this way because I hold you close in my heart. And I love you. I love you so deeply. It, it, it reflects just a faint shadow of the affection that God has shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that your love would abound again and again, and that you would have wisdom and discernment overflowing. And that you would be kept pure and spotless when Jesus Christ returns. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we now do come in the name of your Son, Jesus. And those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are Christians, we unite our hearts, our minds, our voices to this truth Jesus Christ is our King. We know he is the king, but he is our king. And we pray that that king, Jesus Christ, would pour out upon us afresh the Holy Spirit. That he would change us from the inside out. And that as we reflect on our own praying, that over the course of our years of thinking about being in a relationship with Jesus, our prayers would be changed and reflect your love for us. So God, I pray for Embassy Church members, regular attenders, and any of the people here that are guests or visitors, I pray that this message would be an encouragement to them to reflect upon what they really want most. And I pray that like a mirror, you would use this word to reveal that what our hearts should want most is your glory and praise. And in all the ways that we fall short of that glory, we we praise it and we rejoice because we know that you have provided a means of salvation and it's a work that you do and have done and will do and complete. So I pray for confidence. I pray for hope. I pray, God, for this church to be filled with people that love prayer and want to pray from their heart, not just pray As an external action of this is just what we have to do. Heavenly Father, we pray that these things would be coming true not just for our sakes and our good, but for the good of your kingdom and your glory amongst all the peoples of the earth. Lord, I want to pray for what we mentioned earlier that unreached peoples around the world will hear the gospel because of prayers being offered up to you even now. Lord, we love the gospel so much, and our hearts ache when we think about people that don't know or don't even have the chance to know about how you have affectionately loved us in Christ. So we pray with all of our hearts that this church would become so others centered, so others minded, that we would have to be corrected by how much we're thinking about others more than ourselves. May that be a temptation. And may we be the kind of people that love you supremely. In Jesus' name, amen.